Good evening. Uh, I'm Andrew Farrell. I'm Director of uh, Finance here at the LSE. Uh, I'd like to welcome you here and uh, thank you for coming here. It'll be much more interesting than listening to George Osborne, who's elsewhere on the campus this evening, talking about financial sustainability, I think. Um, why is the Finance Director here introducing um, the first in this lecture in uh, sustainability and practice? I think it's very important at a time when universities' financial sustainability is under pressure that uh, the institution and I personally uh, give a commitment that at a period of financial pressure it doesn't mean that we're going to retrench from moving forward on the environmental sustainability agenda. If anything, the opposite. We'll redouble our efforts on the environmental uh, sustainability agenda. Um, this is the first in a lecture series that will go on throughout this term on sustainability and practice uh, to take sustainability out of purely of theory and to take it into what can we do to uh, develop a sustainable world and uh, LSE is about as good a place as any that, that uh, could possibly be discussed. Uh, our speaker this evening, our guest this evening, uh, Sarah Parkin, I happen uh, to have uh, uh, met her and had the pleasure of working with her uh, together on the Higher Education Funding uh, Council's um, Sustainable Development uh, uh, Steering Group. But her credentials in green areas and environmental areas are much, much greater than mine. Uh, she's been involved after an initial career as a nurse in Edinburgh on environmental agenda for some uh, 40 years. She designed the pioneering forum leadership for sustainable development masters. Uh, she sits on the board of the National Environment Research Council, the Leadership Foundation for Higher Education and Head Teachers into Industry, and was a member of the, a board member of the Environment Agency for England and Wales. Uh, she's a companion of the Institute of Civil Engineering and the Institute of Energy. So she's worked on this area for some 40 years. A particular area is uh, leadership in 2001. She was awarded an OBE for services to education and sustainable development. But just before I'm going to hand over to her, I am going to ask you to do a little bit of work with this very expensive personal response system uh, that we've invested in. And uh, really, I've just got three questions. Be assured they're not particularly difficult, but uh, Chantal here will be taking uh, photographs here. And uh, my instructions say, let me get this right, otherwise you're going to be a real mess. Um, that, uh, remind me which side is yes and which side is no? Red side is yes. Right, so red side is yes and the silvery side is no. So, uh, first of all, who came here by public transport? Uh, okay, anyone who got a silvery side, if you walked or cycled, who, who walked or cycled? Okay, so it seems, I won't ask who came here by private jet or whatever, from what I can see, uh, the overwhelming majority of people came here uh, by public transport or cycled or walked, which is rather good. More difficult question, who considers carbon emissions, carbon impacts in your food choices when you decide what to eat? Gosh, I'm impressed. Uh, okay, well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm ashamed I'd have to have given a kind of no on that. As you can see, I eat far too much, and uh, um, uh, that I'll have to address in the future. With no more ado, I'll hand over to Sarah for her uh, talk. Thank you very much, Andy. I do love finance directors. That's the sort of people we really want to get into the heart of um, implementing sustainable development because they've got the money and that's what we need to, to do things. <laughs> so, no, it's been a great pleasure uh, working with Andy and it has been interesting to note, um, working in the public sector and with businesses, the increasing number of finance directors who are getting interested in this topic not just because of the pennies they might be able to save, but because of future business strategies, because in many cases finance directors 
at the heart of organisational strategy development. So I'm delighted to be here. I'm a little bit worried about the audience, though, because it looks as though you might mostly be converts. Um, and possibly you should all be sent out into the street to drag somebody in off the street who's never heard anything about this uh, before. But nevertheless, um, the title of this uh, talk is a sort of a bit of a clue. Um, it, it's, it's really because if we are going to put sustainability into practice, we've kind of got to stop waiting around for somebody to, to sort of say, well, you must do one, two, and three. We've actually got to work out how we can do the right thing ourselves, even when um, everything seems to be stacked against us. Now, I don't know how much of you know anything about Forum for the Future, but we're a, a charity that's been around now for, uh, since 1996. We're absolutely geared to thinking positively about sustainability. We were founded because the founding directors were so fed up with the negativity of it all that we really wanted to get in to write, okay, what are the solutions? Um, and what I want to do, I want to take a post-financial crash perspective, and I can add to that a post-Copenhagen perspective too, on sustainable development, and look at a different way of looking at the causes of it, and also to really underline the magnitude and the urgency of the challenge, because that, for me, is something that's really missing from very much uh, that is going on in all sectors and I'm going to recommend positive deviance as, a, as the best strategy for doing what we need to do. And I warned Andy I was going to take a bit of a swing at higher education and where I think your responsibilities lie and what you could do um, much more of. Now, the reason for all of this is that I've been at this for over 40 years. Um, this is a picture of uh, Teddy Goldsmith, who, uh, the late Teddy Goldsmith, who was founder of The Ecologist magazine. And in 1972, the year of the first Earth Summit, they published Blueprint for Survival, which actually has got their principles for a sustainable society. Now, in 1972, that was published. Um, uh, the environment and sustainability was high on everybody's agenda. We breakfasted in the corridors of power. Uh, government said they were going to set up um, environment departments, which they did. Um, and since then, absolutely nothing has changed significantly. So this is part of my frustration with the fact that we've had series of international uh, conferences. I think environment, in retrospect, environment uh, departments were a gross mistake because it enabled governments to shovel the environment off into a separate department and out of where it should have been uh, in the hands of the finance ministries and the treasury. Um, we perhaps would have got uh, more done more quickly. So a lot of what, where I am now is born of years of frustration, no significant trend that we were really worried about in 1972 has been slowed, never mind uh, reversed. So what are the symptoms? It's a whole system failure, and I think that's only really being understood now. The interconnectedness of what we are doing, the loss, consequence of loss of biomass and diversity, our, our economy consumes well over 40% each year, and each year we turn some of what's ostensibly renewable into an unrenewable resource. We've got mineral depletion, burning um, fossil fuels, um, and even though we've had all of this activity, this growth and this uh, economic activity, um, we are still got persistent poverty, injustice and inequality. Now why should this be? Now, these are just some of the causes of why, if the Earth was to view us, why it would think we were behaving so badly. We've flouted the laws of physics. We do not understand uh, that the consequences of pollution, we do not understand uh, the principles that govern the way the ecological systems work. Uh, we are the biggest contributors to the nitrogen cycle now, and we've turned CO2, which is a very useful, harmless 
uh, gas into a major pollutant. We don't understand the interconnections between the various ecological systems and between our behaviours and them. We don't understand that the strategy of evolution is to increase resilience. Uh, what we've done in the way we've run our lives is to decrease resilience and make ourselves more vulnerable because we're not interconnected, not just with each other, but with the environment. We've not understood that the slowness of evolution is really important. You know, you can do a lot of trial and error um, if you move uh, much more slowly. And if you think since 1750, we've burnt about half a trillion tonnes of carbon, and we're set to burn the other half trillion in the next 40 years, you realise how out of kilter we are in the way we run our economy compared to the rest of the world. So basically, um, we're on an unsustainable uh, trajectory. The human enterprise is um, on track uh, for unsustainability. Now, Nick Stern, I know, talks about this as a market failure. Um, but I don't uh, think it's a market failure. Um, markets are not really that clever about doing any sort of planning and leadership. They're more reactive. They're not interested players. They're not sentient. They hold no values. It's people who create markets. It's people who set the boundaries for what we do. They may be good or bad. I think the failure here is one of leadership. How could we not notice the imbalance between a supply side, which in fact we're shrinking, and a demand that is growing so much. How could we not notice that for so many years, even though all the warnings have been there? As, and I've just talked to 40 years, though there have been warnings there uh, before that. Now we know um, we're not even very happy, even though we have done all this consuming, we've used all this environmental resource, we're not particularly uh, happy um, amongst ourselves. This is of the United States and you get exactly the same from the UK, from Japan and from other developed, um, uh, uh, other developed countries, richer countries. And the key point about this is the assumption has always been that it's been economic growth that will result in us feeling happy and satisfied. And all the research that's coming through now is revealing it's not uh, that that makes the difference. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel good in the relationships we have with others, particularly our intimate family relationships. And we want to feel good about the place we live in. And yet none of those things are actually tracked by the way we judge whether our economy is successful or not. Now, I just want to um, introduce sort of um, another way of thinking about this, the compound error theory of history is what I've called it. And I couldn't resist that quotation um, from the Queen because that was made here at the LSE when she asked, why did nobody notice that things were going so wrong with the financial sector. And now there are real parallels here between not noticing what was going on in the financial sector and not noticing what's going on with the ecology of the world. Now, you will, I would assume, heard of Adam Smith. Those of us lucky enough to have a £20 note in our pocket will see his picture on it. But do you know the other guy? Anyone who does, stick up your... Does anyone know who it is? No. Well, he was a big mate of Adam Smith's. He was indeed um, executor of his will. They were such close friends. And this is James Hutton. Both of them, um, Edinburgh... Um, well, you couldn't call them academics in those days. Moral philosophers was what they were in those days. He wrote a blockbuster, just as Adam Smith wrote a blockbuster called The Wealth of Nations. Um, James Hutton wrote one called The Theory of the Earth, in which he said the purpose of life is life itself. He was describing the economy of the natural world. And he's generally known as sort of the father of the natural sciences, 
where Adam Smith would be described as the father of modern economics. Now, I'm using them to characterise what happened uh, rather than um, the reality because it's been going on for a, quite a while before these two men came around. But essentially what happened, these two friends, they were the sort of their disciples built up what is now human economics and also natural sciences and what I've called biogeochemical economics, the way the economics of the natural world works which is all about molecules and atoms and uh, renewability of the natural world. Neither the natural sciences nor human economics is particularly interested in people as full human beings. They don't really care how we feel about ourselves. They don't really care whether our love life's good. Right, can we do that? Can we dim the lights or brighten the things? Is anyone else having trouble seeing it? Okay, it says real people in the middle. Is that the, that's the worst one, is it? Is that better? Okay, and I think that's really important. You know, as far as natural science is concerned, they're only interested in human beings because they're made up of the same chemicals as the rest of life on Earth. And human economics is only really interested in people as labourers or consumers. They're not interested in who we really are, what, what matters to us, whether we are happy or not. So to return to the Queen's uh, question... When asked about the financial um, collapse, this was a response of one of the LSE professors. Now, somebody was relying on somebody else doing something and everybody thought they were doing the right thing. Now, that kind of sums up the way the leadership, whether it's political leadership, leadership of academics, leadership in business, leadership in any sector, has actually, that's the quality of analysis that's been given to thinking about progress, to thinking about what growth means, to thinking about what was happening to the environment and what was happening to the way we were running um, our economy. And there's a quote there from um, uh, Frederick Soddy, who was um, in 1926, and he was pointing out you cannot have sort of something that grows all the time like compound interest coming up against what is essentially the sort of natural laws that govern the way the physics of the earth works, which are actually in um, degradation all the time. And, and so we've got to a situation where we have replaced the way the natural world works and how we are part of that because we are physically made up of the same stuff with a kind of way of running our life which is detached from the physical reality of the rest of the world. And so what really the challenge is that we have to do is to actually come to some sort of reconciliation and to actually reconnect the way we run the human economy with that of the natural world and to build into that a sort of a reconciliation of what real people are about. We are not just an automatic economic responder that when uh, eco this economic policy or that economic policy is passed, we are guaranteed to respond. And we are also so much more than a collection of molecules. And so that is essentially what we um, have as a challenge before us. And that is very important, not just from a political point of view, but also from the way you do things inside a university. So there needs to be a reconciliation between the way the money is dealt with, the economy is run, what is viewed as success, and also the way that is achieved and the impact of it on the environment, and what does that mean to the people who are involved. So we need to have some sort of confidence in order to be able to change, and I think things are happening quite fast now. This is the behavioural economists um, who have actually come onto the scene and everybody is up saying that this is wonderful because we actually can start thinking of people as different, as 
irrational, it's not predictable. And we've got the neurophysiology coming in as well that's actually telling us we prefer to cooperate, we prefer to collaborate. We don't necessarily like to be unpleasant, aggressive and competitive. We want things to be fair. We seem to be hardwired, hard according to the neurophysiologist, to fairness and justice. And all of this is now becoming, uh, coming through. So you've got the psychological and the physiological evidence of what it is that makes us happy and what we feel morally to be a good life. Now the challenge is, is to turn that into um, an objective for our economy. And I think, again, one of the other great things that's happening, um, I don't know, have you noticed Nicholas Sarkozy? his commission looking at different ways of measuring the success of an economy out of an unlikely place has come quite a big project that's actually thinking of new ways of thinking about what a successful economy looks like and it's not they're going to looking at not just how things are now but actually does the way things are now impede on it being good in the future. So much more sophisticated way of being able to think about what good looks like. Does anybody recognize that equation? Does that come up in any of your, your teaching? This is, this is quite an important equation because it helps you understand the dynamics of different elements that go in to sustainability. Um, the impact on our environment um, is equal to the number of people times the amount of stuff, we, the resources we consume, times how effective and efficient we are in that consumption. And some numbers have been put into that um, by some uh, colleagues, by some environmental economists. Um, and so we've got this... Uh, uh, looking at the evidence, we need to reduce our impact on the environment by 50%. Number of people in the world is forecast to rise to 9 to 10 billion in the UK. It's predicted that we may get up to another uh, 10 million people over the next couple of decades. Um, affluence, we have to assume consumption will grow. It's certainly growing at the moment though it's stalled thanks to the, one of the good things that's come out of the financial crash, is a 3% drop in greenhouse gases in 2008. So a very direct connection between the fact that it's what we consume has got a very big impact on what happens. And if you put in these assumptions, you find we need to improve the way we do our consuming by about 70 to 90% depending on when we want, whether we want equality in both rich and poor countries, which I'm assuming we do, then it's 90%. Now, when I saw these numbers, I thought, right, that's the game up. I'm going off to um, grow roses and vegetables because it's all mission impossible. But I went to see uh, people at the Institute of Energy. I went to see people at the Institute of Materials, and I showed them these figures. And I said, is this impossible, that we can be that much more efficient in the resources and the energy that we use? And they said, not at all. <clears throat> we are humongously wasteful in the way we use both, and it is entirely possible to achieve that. But I'm not quite sure how many action plans in universities, businesses, or elsewhere actually have got that uh, goal. One of the great lessons that comes out of <clears throat> this equation um, is that there isn't people in that. There isn't people apart from their numbers and their activities as a consumer. And I think one of the things the environment movement has got a lot to answer for is it's given the impression that it doesn't give a monkeys about people. It's passionate about the environment but it actually isn't very passionate about people. And the really important thing, if you think about achieving this sort of scale of improvement in our, the way we do things to reduce our impact on the environment, that if people do not see that it's good for them and that they are a part of this, they are, there's a positive 
a role for them to play and the genuine impulse for environmental um, uh, protection is to make things good for people, then they will not collaborate. And it is, that is such an important message as we move now into what are critical times. We're really hard up against deadlines. You look at the, the Committee for Climate Change and the challenges that are in there for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. If people do not feel that this is part of making life better for them, then they will work against and not for it. I couldn't resist this. This is the um, Merrill Lynch bull, which I think is still in the Merrill Lynch uh, front offices in the windows of their uh, headquarters. It's made entirely of rubbish. And I think it's a wonderful metaphor for what has actually been happening inside our financial system. And I think it also is a wonderful <laughs> metaphor for the way we've approached sustainability. And I'm talking about governments as well as our own um, practice in our organisations and at home. We're all at the end of the pipe. You recycle, do you hear? Do you recycle here? Well, the waste's already been created. So by definition, by doing recycling and doing other things, you're adding more use of energy and resources to deal with the waste. And we've now got local authorities signing 25-year contracts uh, with incinerators and other waste management companies for a sustained provision of waste for the next 25 years. And if you look at the waste strategies of this government, never mind some others, you realise it's been written by people who are scientifically illiterate. They are not understanding that if you put resources into an economy um, and you churn them around, you will get waste and pollution. And the only way to do something about the waste and pollution in a way that makes sense scientifically is to stop bringing it in. Now this is a big challenge because we are running economies which are predicated on a growth of consumption and therefore on a growth of resources. And I don't know about you here, do you have a strategy that is front of pipe, that is actually not bringing the resources in in the first place as your strategy for reducing the waste? Um, I put this up, this is part of my sort of urgency. Um, this um, comes from the US uh, National Intelligence Council and this was the document, the big fat document that was given to Obama uh, just as he was elected. And it pointed out the high strategic challenges that the world faces. And this is their conclusion, this is their running, their sort of summing up that scarcity are the hallmark of tomorrow's world. Scarcity of everything, of land, water, space for greenhouse gases. We use almost every uh, hectare of land that is available for growing food at the moment in the world. And you've got countries buying up chunks of Africa in order to be able to grow food and biofuels at, at the moment. So there is real competition for resources which is hotting up at a tremendous pace. But the thing that comes out of this for me is this, it's not inevitable. We are all so passive in the sort of feeling that it is inevitable and we're waiting for somebody else to tell us what to do. And I think this is so important. We can all give leadership on this. We can wait. Well, maybe, maybe that post-Copenhagen there is going to be a tremendous change. Everybody's going to get together. They're going to come up with some nice hard-binding uh, treaties in order to be able to deal with uh, climate change and greenhouse gases. There's going to be some sort of sustainability treaty that's going to have... All of that will be fantastic and we have to hope it happens. We have to hope in our own country that our leadership, whatever party may be in power after the next election, makes this central. Everything central to what it does is moving on to a sustainability trajectory. But that won't change 
the fact that it's going to be you and me that implements it. That they, you can have diktats, we can have all sorts of things, we can make it be made a lot of easier if taxes were different, all of those things. But one, we can't rely on happening it on it happening, and even if it does, we are still going to be the people that have to put it into practice. So therefore, it's important that we understand the interventions are going to require us to put some effort into it. Now, um, this is from uh, Nick Stern's report, slightly amended, because in the report it was for energy only. This whole idea that we've got this, this sort of opportunity, this triangle of opportunity to shift that top business as usual line down to the stabilization and reduction of greenhouse gases. And I've um, enlarged it. He, he had it just for energy. And the point was, um, the point of this is that each slice, if you like, of that triangle, there's a range of things you can do in it. And that we must try to make all of them happen and all of them work. Because this waiting for just the one silver bullet, the one fix, the one policy, the one technology that's going to solve it, it's all, we're like rabbits in the headlights, sort of waiting for this. And so the recommendation was that you just get on and really try to do all of those things and don't worry about overshoot. That would be wonderful if we got a bit of overshoot on this. But we've really got to get going, and it's going to be millions of right actions that are going to make the difference. Because unsustainable development is not a global conspiracy. It's millions, trillions, squillions of unknowingly wrong decisions and actions. So sustainability will be about even more knowingly right decisions and actions. And we can build natural capital. We can help the environment to help us. You can get an enormous amount of economic activity that brings satisfaction if you build human capital and you build social capital. And it doesn't have to cost a lot of carbon. We can bring birth rates down. 40% of pregnancies in this country and globally are unplanned. 300,000, at the very least, women in poor countries would love access to contraception but don't have it. No coercion is needed. We need to use fewer resources overall, and even if the energy is going to be generated renewably, we still need to have a lifestyle that depends on less energy because it will be if we can think we can live the same sort of lifestyle we have now on renewables, then it's a fantasy. So we need to reduce the, our dependency on resources. And whatever resources we do use, we have to be ultra-efficient. It's not a matter of fewer resources or efficiency. It's a matter of both. Now, positive deviance as a strategy for change Actually, a growing number of people are doing this, and I, I really think that you know a band of positive deviants um, is quite attractive. You know, we might get buttons with PD written on it. Um, but essentially, these are people who are doing the right thing, despite the barriers, despite the wrong rules and processes, and uncooperative colleagues, and they're doing it in a way that brings other people along. And I think this is tremendously important. I've just been looking at the Scottish Climate um, Change Delivery Plan, and they are worried because they want to do this climate delivery plan, but in many cases they haven't got the policy levers because they are vested in either the European Union or in the United Kingdom. And so we hope we'll be helping them to find ways that they can deliver on their climate change challenge, despite the fact that they have got the wrong rules, they've got the wrong um, powers over policy and so on. And it's there that you get tremendous creativity when you're actually thinking, well, how can I do this despite all the difficulties? 
Because if we wait for the institutions to change, we'll be waiting um, in, in enormous timescales. Institutions change slowly. And they change because people actually start to do things differently, start to do things um, outside them and around them. And there's some examples there of people who are acting of positive deviance. Daniel Barenboim, I don't know how many of you know this, he has a, an orchestra which is made up of Palestinians and Israelis and he's got them from different countries. They play all over the place and he's not frightened of doing things dangerously um, and he's not frightened of um, being considered um, you know, of, of working off, off his territory because he's found that this way of, of young people, different cultures, what you actually have to do to make good music together is an excellent place to learn about what you have to do to make sustainable development together. SOPA, have you heard of SOPA? Person-to-person -person lending. Um, they, do, they do quite a lot on sustainable issues, though they haven't got a special category for that. Uh, divine chocolate. Who doesn't know about divine chocolate? You should really know. It's wonderful. But it's actually, they've taken into their own hands not just the growing of the cocoa, but the manufacturer and the and the distribution of it. They've sort of cut away from all the middlemen and they've made it work on their own. The carrot mob, who's heard of the carrot mob? Have you participated? Very good. Brilliant. It, nine carrots. Nine carrots. Dot org. Okay, look it up because essentially, and this is the American one, which I think has been replicated here, is to choose a store in your high street, and to actually say to that store, "What do you bid to change the way you do things, uh, to, so that you are more environmentally and socially sustainable?" And the store that wins we will organize a mob to come and shop in you. And so it's a tremendous way of changing high streets and, and communities. Who knows Sandbag? Oh gosh, there's a little card core here, which is wonderful. Um, Bryony Worthington, a long time climate change activist, so fed up with the failure of the, um, of the, uh, the whole sort of way of running the Kyoto principles and the, and the whole way of trying to um, get a market for carbon dioxide emissions. These are emissions that have already been produced. Madness should be up front. So carbon mobilised should be taxed, not after it has been mobilised. And so you can go onto that website and you can buy a tonne of carbon and then she will take it out of the marketplace. So we'll retire it and so she got so fed up with the failure of the markets for doing. Sikatsu Club, who knows about that? Brilliant. Japanese women got together, ran a cooperative for goods, and it got so big now that they actually are able to have manufacturers and farms producing according to environmental and social stand ethical standards, and they stand for re-election. You'll know the Grameen Bank and so on. Russell Simmons has got a rush card, which actually helps people who've got no um, credit rating to actually be able to have a credit card like everybody else. So these are people who are doing what Raymond Williams says there, to be truly, they are radical and they're making hope possible rather than despair convincing. Now, I want to end by just a quick, this is my, well, reasonably quick, case for university leadership because I think it really, really matters. We're suffering from a crisis of leadership, uh, certainly politically and uh, certainly in other sectors. And universities have got all the evidence, the ideas and the policies that we need 
I just know from the people I talk to, my experience in the Leadership Foundation for Higher Education, Forum for the Future ran Higher Education, um, Partnership for Sustainability um, a few years ago, six or seven years ago. It's all in there. Everything we need to be positive deviants and to actually do the right thing. But that body of knowledge is not joined up. It's not coherently presented. People inside universities are not speaking to others in a language that can be heard. And above all, they're not producing sustainability literate graduates in volume. So as a consequence, we've got this monstrous untapped potential to really help people um, uh, find out what is the best thing, what is the right thing that they can do in different areas, in different places. There's an opportunity in universities to do place-based trials in partnership with others, local authorities and others in their area. Um, an opportunity to, do, to show what works and to also of the policy implications of taking things to scale. Things are happening, but I was moaning to Andy, it's pathetically weak in my, um, in my book. Um, so there is some things happening and students are at last, at last getting a bit of grit into them again and starting to be active and starting to manifest for things that really, really uh, matter. But there are things, um, I think the higher education leadership is on another planet. Um, I think that goes for whether it's leadership in government or leadership within the um, um, higher education sector themselves, employers and employability, there isn't this understanding that if we're going to have a sustainable future out in the um, uh, workplace, we actually need people who are sustainability uh, literate. If I ruled the world, nobody would leave any publicly funded education um, establishment if they were not sustainability literate. So the entrepreneurial university would actually be um, um, prioritising everything it does so that it contributes to sustainable development. It would understand the need for pace and scale. It would focus on people and behaviour change. And this is really important. There is a feeling that you need an environmental science degree if you are going to do anything about this. You need to understand the physics and, uh, of the way the world works, the biogeochemical economy works. You need to understand a bit of uh, biology. But the focus is on people and how they think, how they, what they worry about and how they change. It's on behaviour change. The environment knows everything there is to know about sustainability. It's we who don't. And so it's our... our capacity and our behaviour that we need to focus upon. And I think the entrepreneurial university could concentrate on what Adair Turner called the socially useful, which might take a huge chunk out of um, some of the teaching in the London School of Economics. Um, and I think you should encourage positive deviance, both um, institutionally and in the way you influence others. It's a whole institution undertaking. I think this this lecture series and the impulses behind it are brilliant but evaluation on whether you're successful or not at the end number one what have you done to actually contribute to sustainability what, what carbon haven't you mobilized what pollution have you stopped all of those classic things number two how ubiquitous is it in the institution it's no good if it's in one department it needs to be everywhere in the institution and number three, how have you influenced others? Who else have you actually got to join in, whether it's in the sector or in your um, suppliers and things like that? There are lots of things to do. I've highlighted what I think are the number one things you should do. Procurement for resilience, so that you are resilient in the way you actually use things and in the way you... Um, um, get rid of your waste and so on. Most importantly, retrofit workforce and make sure all graduates are sustainability literate. 
80% of the people who will be in leadership roles over the next 20 years are already through higher education. They're out there already. And Andy, if you're worried about financial cutbacks, what about making, us, making the LSE a destination university where you can actually make sure you're sustainability literate and where you would send your existing workforce in order to get up to speed and, of course, carbon reduction. Thank you very much for listening. That's a plug for the book, Positive Deviant. And that quote from Mark Twain is one of my favourites. Always do right. It'll gratify some people and astonish the rest. So go forth and astonish. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah. I think we have about 15 minutes for uh, questions, uh, so I'll try to pick people who look positively deviant out of the audience to uh, uh, ask some questions. Uh, that's uh, what gentleman here. After the failure of Copenhagen, uh, a great many people are very pessimistic about conventional campaigning and also in their own lives they feel skeptical about what they can do to make a difference and I'd be interested in your view about um, a possibility of having a global boycott campaign to boycott the most outrageous forms of carbon pollution such as tar sands or deforestation and really making those kind of activities unprofitable by boycotting the companies which invest in them. Uh, I wonder if you think that could be effective. Um, yes, I can understand everybody's frustration. I, I was not surprised at what happened in Copenhagen. Essentially, they were trying to um, produce what would be a global energy policy. And the process that was engaged to do that was just nonsense. So there was a that major process problem, got very muddled with geopolitics. Um, and maybe something will be sorted, um, I don't know. But I would counsel against negative campaigning. I think it's so exhausting and dispiriting. Why not campaign for something that is good and right and shrivel the bad that way? Thank you. Thank you. You uh, didn't give Sarah, of course, credit for being in the Green Party for a long time. And uh, I remember her certainly on any questions on the one or two occasions on the, on the television as well. So we, we claim, uh, as a representative of Lambeth Green Party, uh, just south of the river here at Waterloo, we claim you, and of course, you quoted the source Eakins, which was Paul Eakins, he used to be a member of the Green Party, of course, Lord Porritt, Jonathan Porritt, ex-Friends of the Earth and so on. So if anyone, the election's coming up, if anyone wants to help and lives in Lambeth, come and see me afterwards. Sorry for the political plug. <laughs> I did pick a positive deviant there. One behind you. This whole talk about green jobs for the green economy, Obama's been talking about it. Is it real? Can they be created? And if so, how? I think, uh, I, I think the word green jobs is sort of being bandied around. But Obama is very clever because when he talks about doing something about climate change, he talks about the different sorts of jobs that will be available. There's absolutely no doubt that there's a massive amount of work to be done. Um, and we can question why we've got an employ a system of employment that actually makes it quite difficult to get at the doing of uh, quite a lot of that work. So I'm entirely confident that there will be plenty of work to be done. Whether it's done in the same way or whether it's done in a mixture of paid work, um, community contributions, self-work, I think there'll be quite a change, uh, not least because we have got um, uh, what is described as an ageing population, which I happen to think is an advantage. Um, but there will be different patterns of work. You know, it, the, the system we've got up, we've got for working 
was that you know it, by the time you reach retirement age you're dead in the first in two or three years but now people are living another 30 years so there need and there needs to be a new way of spreading it all around and there is there is a lot of conversations about how that might happen so you can call it green jobs i i would prefer to call it is sort of different ways of working to get the work done that needs to be done to move us onto a more sustainable way of life. And that goes to the heart of the, you know, economic growth thing, is that some of that work will not necessarily deliver an increased consumption of resources, which is what is counted as, a good, as, as good work at the moment. I'm conscious I can't see over there. No, nobody over there. Gentleman in the front row. <laughs> That's fine. Thank you. Um, my question relates to, I don't know if there are any academics here tonight from LSE or anywhere else, but my question relates to how uh, higher education establishments can really engage in subject. There's obviously lots and lots of um, academic areas that really could integrate sustainability quite easily in terms of the curriculum, yet often when you ask academics, can you do this, they sort of come up with a the problem that um, sort of you know their academic freedom is being undermined. Do you think this really is an issue, and can it be overcome? Well, I think I think a lot of academics back off because they they really are terrified that they're they're going to have to teach stuff they don't know much about. Um, <clears throat> but I think there's a very small amount of principles and understanding that can be stitched into any course. And my favourite example. Um, was from a question I had is, well, look, I teach music. What has that got to do with sustainability? And it's very simple. You know, violins are made by child labor in terrible circumstances, just the way, you know, um, sports shoes and other things are. So to be actually be able to think about where things come from and to take the example of people like Barenboim who actively use music as a, a way of prosecuting for peace. And so music is something all of us can do. We could, we could all of us learn to play music. We could all of us um, participate in some way. An enormous amount of social capital could be built. A great deal of pleasure and activity uh, could take place, which is low in carbon. So there is, if you look at every single subject, you can come up with a way of seeing how it can actually contribute to sustainability and <clears throat> and help its graduates understand how that might might happen. Gentlemen here. Uh, my question is a bit similar to the previous one, um, but when Hefty, in my understanding, has tried to push a sustainable development <coughs> agenda onto higher education institutions, there has been a bit of a backlash. Um, so I guess my question is, do you think the government just wasn't strong-willed uh, strong enough, or do you think that the change needs to come from within the institution, either from the academics or the students? <clears throat> there is a legal um, position here. Um, the government is not allowed to interfere in the university sector and the autonomy of the universities. Um, when, you know, the nearer you get to schools over which it's got total control, you know, the more control it's got, but higher education, it's legally not allowed to. So the notion that its funding council would start telling um, universities how to run the academic side, you know, and everybody went spare. And it has to be recognised it wasn't handled with what might be called super sensitivity. Um, it could have been done better. But given all of that, um, universities are individually autonomous, and this is the, partly the strength of the sector, but it's also partly the weakness of the sector. Um, and I think one of the most important things uh, for everybody who is a student to understand is that when vice-chancellors wake up in a sweat in the middle of the night, it's that they've lost the confidence of their students and their staff. So the opportunity is there for students and staff to be particularly clear about how they would like their university to contribute to sustainability. If I may, I would just add on that that it was really student action here. Joel Kenrick, <coughs> former Environment and Ethics Officer of a Student Union, former Treasurer of a Student Union, who campaigned in quite interesting ways 
uh, with the Student Union for an environmental policy for the LSE. The LSE was quite a late adopter of an environmental policy. It's here. Um, the LSE's environmental policy only in 2005, April of 2005. Uh, but by last year, relatively quick time, had managed to get to second place in the People and Planet League table. So I, I don't really recognize there's a backlash against the agenda. There's more of a backlash of being told what to do. And universities understandably don't like that, but I, I do think universities are, at their own different basis, embracing uh, the, the agenda. There's a question over there. Um, thank you for your lecture. Um, I was, I was going to ask, um, you, you talked about sustainable development and sort of how to, how to get there. I was wondering your thoughts on what sustainable development actually is. I mean, there's so much controversy over, I mean, w w what is it? Is it something as narrow as simply being environmentally sustainable and, and, and maintaining our resources, or is it something more broad? You talked about social capital, human capital. I mean, personally, I think that one of the things which is sort of limiting us in achieving it is that we simply don't know how to get there. We don't really know what it is. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Sustainable development, <clears throat> in a nutshell, is about achieving our social, our environmental and our economic goals at the same time. But we've pursued them separately and in conflict. And so it's thinking of ways of thinking about how we can actually do things together. Um, and I, you know, when I'm sort of hardline, I, I would say that our economy is a social construct. So it's really our social and our environmental goals. And, uh, you know, society can decide how it runs its economy. <clears throat> We're in a situation now where we've been given a quite a golden opportunity to realize that e e economics, the economy, the financial sector, are actually things over which we have control and we can shape them the way we want them to be. So it's, you know, I think that's one of the, the biggest outcomes of the financial crash. It sort of opened up the opportunity to think about how we might do things differently. <clears throat> and this is uh, based on a tool that Forum for the Future uses on how to actually think about things in a joined up way. And down the vertical side, you've got finance, you've got the infrastructure of the building, You've got social capital, the things that people do together better than they do on their own. You've got human capital, which is us, as fully developed, fully um, um, uh, participatory human beings. And you've got natural capital as the natural world. And you can think about what you do on campus, what you do in the curriculum and research, <clears throat> and what you do in the community in relationship with others. Um, and you, that, that helps you to think in a joined-up way. So it's a tool for enabling that joined-up thinking. And it becomes a habit. Uh, one of the big problems of leadership, of management training, is that you are taught to put everything into little compartments and deal with things one by one. And phrases like, we must do this in bite-sized chunks. All of these things need to banish, because we're all interconnected. The reason we've got all the problems we've got in the financial system, and I'm quoting one of the American bankers that are currently under the scrutiny in the States at the moment, we didn't realize everything was so interconnected. And one of the um, uh, um, banks that of which we are now the lucky owners, or ma ma uh, owners in, in this country, one of their board members said, you know, we didn't think all the risks would go red at once. You know, everything seems to be like a piece of knitting. Now, that is because they are all out of a culture which trains people, leadership people, to think compartmentalised and not in systems. But everything is connected. And everything is, you know, they're systematically um, linked together. So you need tools like this to help you do that. Because it's hard for us, but we've got to really make our brains hurt and make it work. Okay, thank you. I'll just take a couple more questions. The gentleman over there has been uh, 
persistent for some time. Yes, thanks for that inspiring presentation. My question is on the, 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 the problem of a strategy for change that you, in terms of your connections of positive deviance and the way out. The question you mentioned of whether do we really have a plan, not in terms of environmental, but also the problem with the economic aspect of that change and the strategy you mentioned in terms of making hope possible. Is that re a realistic um, proposition in terms of the environment and the failure at Copenhagen? What do you think of that? I think it's realistic. And if anybody tells you it's not realistic, don't, don't listen. That has to be realistic. It has to be realistic that we do the right thing in order to move on to a sustainable way of life. And all this, you know, this, um, so we can't do that, it's politically impossible. We can't do that, it's economically impossible. We can't do that, it's unrealistic. Is nonsense. You know, we can make our own future reality. We have got the ability to do this. We're not passive. We, and so I think it's really important we think very positively about what is the right thing to do and we work to make it happen. And it's, liber it's liberating. It makes you really feel very positive about the future because you're working for it. It won't be easy, but it is the sort of reality we have to work for. Final question. <coughs> The positive vision we're supposed to be trying to uh, talk people into for sustainable development. The environmental side is much easier for some people to project, but in terms of a social vision for future, if you have a finite world with a certain income, natural income every year, that means that there's only so much wealth for everyone. So do you envision that this wealth is equally distributed across the entire population? Or do you think that there's always going to have to be some form of some people getting more than others? And that could be country or region or etc. Well, you know, equity is a bit like the good life um, and living a sort of a, a good moral life. It's the journey towards it we have to focus on. Um, it would be lovely to think that there was a degree of equity, but the minute you start to follow through and realise that actually there's only two hectares per person of sort of land, and that in in uh, in Africa it's about you know, half a hectare, and I think we use two, and I think Americans use five, and all of that. Well, how do you divide it all? You can get very bogged down. But what we can do is say we want to move towards an equitable way of living. And it's that journey which is the positively inspiring one. We can get, it, you know, I'm not quite sure what good would look like. What is the good life? What is it when I get to the end of my life, I'm going to look back and say, I did my best. That, you know, I may not have got it all right, but I, I did my best. Most people don't even think about what their definition for their own life would look like. And so when it comes to these big issues like equity, about what the good life is, leading a moral life, think of the journey. And it's the journey that counts. And there's quite a bank of philosophers going right back to the Greeks who will um, explain that to you. Okay, thank you very much. Shall I take that gentleman's question? He's been so persistent and, uh, that uh, if you have time, we'll take that. Hopefully it's a nice one to finish with anyway. Thanks for your talk, Sarah. I really enjoyed that. And um, I think positive deviance is certainly something um, I would advocate as well. And I, I hope I live that way. I don't know. And hopefully it rubs off, rubs off my friends. But there's always a few that get away. And that links to... So there's a couple of questions I was going to ask you. One really quickly is, when you decided to convert from nursing profession to move into the environmental movement, was it an act of positive, positive deviance that persuaded you? And when you act in a positive, positive deviance way in your day-to-day -day life, are there still people that, that you find frustrated with that, that it doesn't quite sink in with? And how do you approach that then? Ah, 
Um, the, the, the shift for me was that reflection about what I wanted to say about my life towards the end of it. Having watched and been with people who were dying, actually, um, and how many people were really fizzing mad because they hadn't thought about all of this sooner. You know, and, they're, and their, their list was not, oh, I've done all these bad things. Their list was, oh my God, you know, all these things I wanted to do and I haven't done them. So that made me, ref made me reflect. It, there was also, it was at the time of it, the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. And I, you know, I'm a fairly compassionate person and I just shifted compassion from individuals in hospital beds to actually the human, human species. And it was the result of one of the signatories to uh, Blueprint for Survival who actually spoke about that need to actually intervene in the lot of human beings um, required us to be compassionate, to care what happened to others. And that, again, is really important. I mean, empathy is taught on business courses, and that just means you've got to sort of feel for your situation, but you don't have to intervene. Compassion means you have to intervene. So I've been intervening all this time. Um, there have been ups and there have been downs, um, and essentially it's been because I know it's, this is not something that's going to happen quickly, this will happen over a long period of time, I shall be under the sod by the time we're sort of really turned around and on a sustainable path. But I actually have got enormous faith in people. You know, it's scratch people, and they are not aggressive, greedy people. People are cooperative and fair. They enjoy doing things together. Look at all this snow. People have had a whale of the time, you know, helping each other out and enjoying it. And we've now got much more from the behavioural economists and from the uh, neuroscientists that tell us that's how we really are. And that's sort of permission to do it and to be the way we are and bring out the best in us, not the worst, which is what the current economy does. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Um, and uh, thank you for going a little bit over time there and uh, bearing with us. Um, let, let me just make a couple of comments, uh, if I may. Uh, uh, one is I personally am inspired by somebody who opens a talk by saying that since 1972, nothing significant has happened, um, but uh, closes it with very positive optimism and uh, continued hope uh, that indeed it will and uh, uh, the audience here and others will go forward and, uh, and uh, do the right thing. And the second is, despite your um, suggestions uh, teasing me that uh, I might feel you know, challenged as it were in this. I actually feel pretty good. There's one particular thing that I, I felt pretty good about, which uh, is uh, as some of the team here know, I, I simply refuse to sign a uh, waste uh, recycling and uh, uh, disposal contract, even though it was a zero landfill contract. So it's just far too much money. But apart from that, our focus should be on reducing waste, not on having good you know, environmental ways of dealing with waste, and I really like them to work on a plan for reducing the stuff that comes in here rather than improving how it goes out of here, and I'm sure they've got an excellent plan that they'll uh, share with me uh, very, very shortly. So I, I was pleased to hear your comments on, on uh, that particular point. Uh, I thank uh, you for you know, uh, having this first uh, sustainability and practice uh, event here. I just want to ask the audience again, and of course, I got my instructions completely wrong, so I'll stay wrong. Um, if, uh, so show red yes and the other side no if you're going to come to another sustainability in practice event. Right. Right. Oh, good. They're all going to be very, very, uh, very busy in future then. Thank you. I don't actually see a single uh, non-red side, so uh, hopefully you're all very honest and true. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for bearing with the fact that it isn't actually that warm in here uh, this evening. And uh, have a safe journey home. Thank you very much.